In this series, we're going to be learning through the Sefer Sha'arim Lishare Yosher from Reb Ruvain Raz, which is a very valuable Sefer that goes through the essential points and concepts in Reb Shimon Shkup's Share Yosher. So this is a very useful Sefer because Share Yosher is a very important conceptual Lamdisha work, but he throws a lot of information at you. So the Sefer is divided into seven gates or parts, and in each one, Reb Shimon discusses another aspect of Sveikos when there's an uncertainty in Halacha. And of course, as one of the great Rosh Yeshiva, he has very important insights in these topics, but a lot of times it can get lost in the long discussion that he has, quoting all sorts of sources and all sorts of different questions and answers. So the main outline of what he's trying to do can sometimes get confusing, and a lot of times it's just too long for people to go through. So in this Sefer, Rabbi Raz goes through a basic outline of what ideas Reb Shimon is trying to develop and what are his unique contributions to each of these discussions. So you get a broader bird's eye view of the Sefer Shari Yosher and an outline of what Reb Shimon is doing in each of these lengthy sections. So in that way, it's a very useful Sefer as a key to helping people to learn through the actual Shari Yosher and be able to keep in mind the overall trajectory of what Reb Shimon's trying to do. Now, in addition to that, Reb Shimon is known to have had a unique way of learning, which was similar to Reb Chaim Soloveitchik and the Brisker method, but it was also different. So historically, Reb Shimon was sort of a quasi-student of Reb Chaim. He studied in Valazhin when Reb Chaim was there as a young man. So before Reb Chaim really became Reb Chaim, before he was even a Rebbe in Valazhin, he became the assistant Rosh Hashiva at 28, but originally Rab Chaim moved to Valazhin when he got married and he lived there from 20 to 26 and then later he returned as a Rebbe for 10 years. So during those first years, Reb Shimon was also a student in Valazhin. That was the only yeshiva Reb Shimon studied in and at that time he did have interactions with Reb Chaim. But again, Reb Chaim was younger. He had not fully developed his brisker method at all. It was just beginning and Reb Shimon was very close in age to Reb Chaim. So he was not technically technically a student, and he does not call Reb Chaim his Rebbe, but he did study in Valazhin and knew Reb Chaim at that time. So it seems likely that there was some influence from Reb Chaim, who was a young budding Lamdin at the time, and the young student Reb Shimon. So that's why in some sources they'll call Reb Shimon a student of Reb Chaim, whereas others will refer to him as a friend of Reb Chaim. He was really somewhat in the middle. He's what's called a Talmud Chaver. He was a quasi-student. Reb Chaim the Rav of Vilna was also in that category with regard to Rab Chaim. So Rab Chaim, when he was a young man, knew some of the outstanding students in Valazhin who later became great Talmidei Chachamim, and some of them borrowed somewhat from Rab Chaim, but they were not full-fledged Talmidim of Rab Chaim. Now, Reb Shimon borrowed more than someone like Rab Chaim Moser because he became one of the great Rosh Yeshiva. He married the niece of Reb Lazer Gordon, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Tells, and he taught in Tells for about 20 years. Then he taught in a few other yeshivas that were his own. And finally, in the yeshiva in Grodno, which is what he's best known for, there he created one of the great yeshivas in Europe before World War II. And many, many Talmidim came to study under Reb Shimon. He was beloved by his students. He was a very caring Rebbe. And he was an open-minded person in the sense that he was very at peace with himself. And he was not one to start getting angry when people were disagreeing with him. He was just a very tolerant, moderate, loving person. But he was one of the great 
Rosh Yeshiva. And of course, he spent most of his time sitting and learning and giving Shiurim. And the product of many of those Shiurim was his great Sefer, Share Yoshar. And that Sefer, which talks about Sveikos, reflects a lot of Reb Shimon's unique form of Lamdis. Now, how to define the difference between Reb Shimon and Reb Chaim is more complicated. It is known that Reb Shimon had a bit of a different method of Lamdis than Reb Chaim, and his students were very well aware of it. This was associated with the Yeshiva and Tells, and then, of course, with the Yeshiva and Grodno, as well as with Share Yosher. So it was known that Reb Shimon would ask questions. He would give the types of answers that Reb Chaim very often would not. Reb Chaim would avoid much of the type of Lamdis that Reb Shimon would offer, but it's hard exactly to define what the difference is. One of the standard formulations of this is that Reb Chaim would only ask what questions. He was only interested in how to define the halacha, but he would never ask why. Why is the halacha this way? Why did the Torah say that? Reb Chaim believed that those types of questions are beyond what a human being can expect to understand. The reason for halacha is that Hashem in his infinite wisdom structured it and formulated it that way. And the best that we humans can do is to try to understand what the halacha is saying, how to define the halacha, but we cannot understand why. Reb Shimon, on the other hand, would ask this why question. So after he formulated what the halacha is saying, he would then continue one further step and say, why is the halacha like that? Why would Hashem have structured it that way? So this was a question that Rab Chaim avoided. Now, the other way to formulate this is that Rab Chaim would very often give one insight into a topic, and that insight would be incredibly penetrating, so it would transform the whole topic. But then Rab Chaim would sort of leave it. He would not pursue that insight into every nook and cranny of the subject and figure out how it fits in with everything and how it changes all sorts of details of this halacha. Whereas Reb Shimon would continue with the insight and he would go through the entire subject and figure out how this insight played out in the rest of the subject. And he would go into every nook and cranny and try to understand it in light of the insight that he had. So those are two possible formulations of what Reb Shimon's doing, which is a little different than Reb Chaim. Now, it's hard to find examples of where Reb Shimon does this because again, Shari Yosher is a very large book with all sorts of details that are discussed and a lot of them are very traditional Lumdisha ideas or formulations or questions and answers. So in a lot of them, you don't see Reb Shimon's uniqueness. There are some ideas in Shari Yosher which are unique to to Reb Shimon, and especially in some of the works which were published posthumously in Chidushe Reb Shimon Yehuda Kohen Shkup. So in a lot of those Chidushim, there's also more of the types of ideas that are in line with Reb Shimon. But again, it can be hard to locate these unique types of Lamdis in Share Yosher, which is Reb Shimon's main work that he published in his own life. So that's another strength of the Sefer Sha'arim L'Share Yosher, that there you do start to see a lot of the essential forms of Lamdis of Reb Shimon, which are unique to Reb Shimon, the types of ideas that Reb Chaim would not have been interested in. So for those who are interested in Reb Shimon as a unique Lamdin, not in the types of ideas Reb Shimon has, which are standard, which other Lamdanim would have also said. And of course, many of those ideas are also very important because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who said it or what their style is. Whatever helps understand the Gemara or the Halacha is useful. And that's 
of course the main reason all these people are learning not to develop a methodology or to develop unique ideas, but to understand the Torah. But for those who are interested in the unique types of ideas of Reb Shimon, so this Sefer and this series gives a good overview of those types of ideas. And again, through this series, one can either get the Sefer Shar and Lashare Yosher, or then get Shari Yosher and hopefully be able to learn through it in all its depth and magnificence and grandeur. So we're going to begin with the first chapter in Rabbi Raz's Sefer. This discusses the issue of Suffolk the Oraisa Lechumra. And Reb Shimon has a very important debate with the Shev Shmaitza with regards to the view of the Rambam. And again, this will lead to a lot of Reb Shimon's unique types of ideas. There is a very important debate between the Rambam and the Rashba over the halachic principle that's suffik d'oraisa l'chumra. When there is a suffik regarding a Torah law, so you have to be stringent. If someone's not sure whether this piece of meat is pork or kosher meat, so they're not allowed to eat it. But if it's a suffik drabanan, if it's a rabbinic law, so then you can be lenient. Now, the question that the Rambam and the Rashba debate is when the halacha says suffik d'oraisa is that principle a deoraisa principle or is it a drabanan principle? In other words, does the Torah say that if you're not sure whether this piece of meat is kosher or not, you are allowed to eat it? And then the rabbis said you cannot eat it. So the stringency comes from the rabbis and they were only stringent in questions of deoraisa, not in questions of drabanan. That's the view of the Rambam. Or according to the Rashba, Suffolk de Oraisa Lechumra is built into the Torah itself. So when the Torah gives rules, it is saying you're not allowed to eat non-kosher meat. And even if it's a suffix, whether this meat is non-kosher, it's still prohibited. So suffix de Oraisa Lechumra is from the Torah itself. That's the view of the Rashba. So now the Rashba has three questions against the view of the Rambam. And these are the questions that Reb Shimon is going to answer with his overall analysis. The first question is that the Gemara says that a Suffolk mamzer, if we don't know whether someone is a mamzer, so they are allowed to marry a regular Jew. So this could look like a proof for the Rambam because here you see that according to the Torah, a Suffolk is permitted, but says the Rashba, it's really a question on the Rambam. Because in this specific case, the Gemara is saying that there's a unique leniency for a Suffolk mamzer. But the implication is that in all other cases, a Suffolk is prohibited. Now, according to the Rambam, there's no difference between a mamzer and other cases. In all cases, according to Torah law, a Suffolk is permitted. So why is the Gemara labeling a Suffolk mamzer as a unique case when according to the Rambam, it should be the same as all other cases? So this is proof number one for the Rashba that generally a Suffolk is prohibited mida o raisa, and one of the exceptions is a case of a Suffolk mamzer. Now, the second question is very similar because again, the Gemara says that Suffolk arla in chutzla aretz, if someone's unsure whether this is produce of the first three years, which is prohibited, 
it's called Arla. So if it's in Chutz it's outside of Israel, then it's permitted. And again, the Gemara implies that this is a unique exception. So it seems like generally a Suffolk is prohibited, but Suffolk Arla in Chutz is one of the exceptional cases where it's permitted. And according to the Rambam, that should not be the case because according to the Torah, all cases of Suffolk should be allowed. So that's question number two. And question number three is that the Gemara in Chulin asks, how do we know that we follow a rove? So let's say there's a Suffolk, we're not sure about something, but there's a majority that indicates one way. So most of the pieces of meat are kosher. So the Gemara wants to know, how do we know that we follow a rove? Now, again, according to the Rambam, you don't need a rove because every suffix, according to the Torah, is allowed. So why should the Torah have ever said that rove is a determining factor when even without a rove, just a regular 50-50 suffix is still permitted according to the Torah? So those are the three questions of the Rashba. So to answer this, Reb Shimon argues with the explanation of the Shev Shmaitza, which is a work written by the Ktsos, which also deals with the issues of Sveikis. And on the outside, Reb Shimon's Share Yoshar is modeled out after the Shev Shmaitza. Both of them have seven sections and they both begin with this debate between the Rambam and the Rashba. But in terms of content, Share Yosher is not based on the Shev Shmaitza, meaning it discusses different issues and it's certainly not the same concepts as the Shev Shmaitza, but Reb Shimon had a very high regard for the Ktsos when he was asked who his Rabbeim were. He said it was the Sfarim of the Ktsos, the Ktsos Achoshen and Avne Miluim. He considered the Shev Shmaitza one notch below that, but even so, he modeled, at least on the outside, the Shari Yosher on the Shev Shmaitza. But in this piece, he does get involved with a debate with the Shev Shmaitza. The Shev Shmaitza understands that according to the Rambam, if Suffolk de Oraisa is Lakula, according to the Torah, so that means that the piece of meat is actually allowed to be eaten. There is no more prohibition. So let's say there's a piece of meat and you don't know whether it's kosher or not. That piece of meat under Torah law, now the rabbis again prohibited it, but we're dealing with on a Torah level, it is allowed to be eaten because it's considered kosher. And even if later on it turns out that this was the non-kosher piece of meat, still the person did nothing wrong because they were allowed to eat it according to the Torah. Now, the Shev Shmaitza's answer for the Rambam is that this debate between the Rambam and the Rashba is an earlier debate in the Gemara itself. So that explains why some of the Gemaras don't sound like the view of the Rambam. But Reb Shimon's going to say a totally different conceptual answer for the Rambam. He disagrees with the Shev Shmaitza and he says that according to the Rambam, even though the Torah said that it's permitted to eat this piece of meat because it's a suffix, but still the prohibition does not go away. In other words, the meat is still prohibited, just the Torah did not prohibit eating it. In Reb Shimon's language, Ikar ha'isr eno mishtana al lam The isr, the prohibition itself, does not change because we don't know whether it's prohibited or not. Raksha Torah lo hira al hasafek. What the Rambam holds is that the Torah did not prohibit in a case of a suffix. Hainu shirashay lahachnis atzmo besuffik, meaning you are allowed to put yourself in a situation of suffix. 
Now, if it turns out that you ate meat, which later on you find out was actually the prohibited meat, then you certainly need to repent. So the Rambam is not saying that this meat suddenly changes from being non-kosher to being kosher because it's a suffix. According to the Rambam, the meat stays the same way it is. Originally, it was non-kosher and it remains non-kosher. Now, the Torah did not prohibit a person from eating the meat in that case because the Torah does not prohibit suffix. It only prohibits clear-cut cases. But if the person goes ahead and eats the meat, which they are allowed to do, and then it turns out that the meat was non-kosher, according to Reb Shimon, they are going to need to repent for eating non-kosher meat. And he even adds, In all of these cases of suffake, the prohibition itself does not change. If someone messed up and ended up doing something prohibited, they need to atone. If someone else caused them to do it, says Reb Shimon, that person violates lifnei either of causing someone else to violate a mitzvah of the Torah. So according to Reb Shimon, this piece of meat or this suffix isur is still prohibited. Now, Reb Shimon adds to this that the debate between the Rambam and the Rashba should now be understood this way. According to the Rashba, not only is the meat itself or the suffix isur prohibited, because there's a possibility that this meat or this object is usur, but there's an additional prohibition that the Torah itself said that you are not allowed to do something which may potentially be usur. So the Torah prohibits cases of suffix. And the Rambam disagrees with that additional element of the Rashba. According to the Rambam, the Torah never said that you are not allowed to do something which may be suffix prohibited. The Torah does not comment on cases of suffix. So the only issue that remains is this issue, which was never mentioned by the Torah, that you should not do something which may potentially be prohibited. I think we all understand this intuitively. Suppose there's a piece of meat and you don't know if it's a piece of pork or it's a piece of kosher steak. So of course we would all understand intuitively that we should avoid that meat because if it's a piece of pork, that's going to be a very bad thing for our souls. So that's exactly the point that Reb Shimon makes, that there are prohibitions that are not mentioned explicitly in the Torah, but they're understood from reason and logic that people should not do things which could potentially get them into trouble. And that is the case of Suffolk Isser, according to the Rambam. The Torah never said that it's prohibited, but it should be self-understood that people should not get involved or take something which may be a violation of Torah law. In Reb Shimon's language, the decision free will is given to a person if they want to do something which may potentially be prohibited, so they're allowed to. But you have to be aware of the stakes of the game. If it turns out that this meat was kosher, so then the person is okay and they don't get punished. 
Onsho. But if it turns out that this object was prohibited, then they're going to get punished, either by God or by the earthly court, but there is a punishment. The Ein Tanas Ones Vishogig Bizeh. They can't say, well, I made a mistake or I didn't know what I was doing because he did know. He knew that there was a possibility. There was a 50-50 chance that what he was doing was prohibited and he chose to go ahead and do it. So now it's his responsibility if it turns out that this object was prohibited. So according to Reb Shimon, it's really like a quasi-permission. Yes, the Torah did not prohibit it, but it is still prohibited because one should not be playing games with Torah prohibitions and doing things which potentially can lead to problems. Now, based on this, Reb Shimon goes through a few questions of the Shev Shmaitza and he answers them based on his new understanding. So the Shev Shmaitza's assumption is that according to the Rambam, a case of suffake is totally permitted. And even if the person makes a mistake, they're not held responsible for what they did because there was no prohibition for them to do this. But Reb Shimon, again, disagrees with that. He thinks that there is an extra Torah logical prohibition that people should not play games with Torah law. So based on that, Reb Shimon answers a few questions of the Shev Shmaitza. But I'm going to move along to the next piece that Reb Shimon adds to his analysis. Reb Shimon now asks a very interesting question, which is very much in line with Reb Shimon's unique style of analysis. He says, this still doesn't totally make sense. Since, as we explained, the prohibition remains, how could it possibly be that the Torah or the rabbis permit someone to do something which could be a major problem? The whole point of the Torah is to protect us from doing things we shouldn't do and from getting punished for sin. But here we have cases where the Torah permits a suffix, according to the Rambam, and there's even cases that we mentioned, like a mamzer or suffix arla in chutzla aretz, or Reb Shimon adds a third case, a suffix tuma in reshus harabim. If it's unclear whether this is tuma in the public domain, so we treat that leniently, even according to the rabbis. But there could be all sorts of problems from that. Someone could potentially become tameh and then go into the Beisam Mikdash. So how could it be that the Torah, and in those three cases, the rabbis leave us hanging, as Reb Shimon says, besafek hashakul, it's a 50-50 chance, ulahanicho biyad hamikra, and they just leave it up to chance, to potentially violate the will of Hashem. And even more so, a person could get punished in those cases. So how could we have these glaring omissions in Halacha where there are these cases of Sveikos where a person could get in big trouble and still the rabbis or the Torah did not step in and say this is prohibited. According to the Shev Shmaitza, there's no such thing as this because any Anytime the Torah does not prohibit it, it must mean that this object is permitted. There could be no problems. But according to Reb Shimon, there could be problems down the road if the person does something that was allowed and they end up being wrong. Coincidentally, there's a 50% chance that this object was prohibited. So now they violated the will of Hashem and they could potentially get punished. So Reb Shimon explains this based on a comment of Tosos and Kiddushin, Chavzayin having to do with the case of Sota, Tosvos seems to articulate that there is a distinction 
in some prohibitions between when a person does not know that this is prohibited versus when they find out. So at times we could say that even though the person knew there was potential for this to be a problem, so long as they didn't know there was a problem, it's not considered a sin. Only when they finally realize that this was a problem, at that moment it becomes a sin. But before that it was not a sin. So Reb Shimon wants to suggest the same basic approach for the Rambam. We can apply this framework to the view of the Rambam. The Torah did not prohibit a person when they don't know whether this is actually prohibited. In some cases, the three that we mentioned, Mamzer, Orlan, Chutzla, even the rabbis said that you can still be lenient throughout the whole period where you're not sure. Only once the person figures out if afterwards it turns out that they did something wrong, so at that moment is when the sin begins. So we don't attribute the sin to them from the moment that they eat the meat or they do the suffix isur until they find out that what they did was usur at some point after that. And that's the moment when their responsibility for what they did kicks in at the moment when they find out about it. So this creates some sort of balance for Reb Shimon that on the one hand, there is a lingering prohibition, even in a case of suffix. We can't say that the object is now permitted. It could be a problem if the person eats this down the road, if they find out that what they did was wrong. But on the other hand, at the moment that they go ahead and do it, there is technically no sin. So that's why the Torah did not prohibit it at that moment. So according to Reb Shimon, we have to thread a fine line in this case. On the one hand, the Torah would not prohibit this because at this moment, when the person is eating the meat, there is no prohibition and there's no problem even. There's no sin at all. So So that's why they're allowed to eat it. On the other hand, there is an extra Torah logical prohibition because people should be careful and not do silly things. And eating something which has a 50% chance of being a problem down the road is silly. So Reb Shimon is coming to one of his key ideas in this analysis that there are extra Torah logical prohibitions. The Torah prohibits things based on the rules of logic. But if we anyways know that it's prohibited, like in this case of Suffolk Isur, so then the Torah does not need to get involved. So based on this insight, Reb Shimon's able to answer the three questions on the Rambam. The Rashba asked, why according to the Rambam are there specific leniencies for Suffolk Mamzer and Suffolk Orla in Chutzla Aretz? Says Reb Shimon, because the way a Suffolk works in general, in most prohibitions, is that the Torah did not prohibit it according to the Rambam. Now, as we said, the object remains prohibited and it could be a problem later on. Now the Torah says 
you are allowed to choose to put yourself in a dangerous situation where there is a chance that this object is prohibited. So the Torah leaves it up to each person. But says Reb Shimon, when it comes to regular cases of Suffolk Isur, even though the Torah did not say that it's prohibited, Vadai roi lechol adam lachush lenafsho lifrosh mina Suffolk kmo besuffolk sakana. It's obvious that each person should be careful and remove themselves from this situation as if it was a dangerous situation. Let's say someone wasn't sure if it was safe to drive down this road. Of course, they would avoid it. So the same is true in a Suffolk Iser case. And even though the Torah did not explicitly say this, says Reb Shimon, logic tells us, our own ability to reason tells us, just like we avoid dangerous situations, even if the Torah didn't prohibit it. So the same should apply to Suffolk Iser. So now when the Torah tells us that there are three cases where a Suffolk is actually permitted in the case of Tumah Bershus Arabim, Suffolk Mamzer, and Suffolk Orla in Chutz La'aretz. So now that is a huge Chiddush. That's a massive exception. The Torah is telling us the Rashoim v'zakoyim anachnu lahakel below lachush shema yikoshal be'iser. In those three unique cases, we are allowed to do the suffik and not be concerned at all about whether we're making a mistake and whether there's going to be a problem down the road. And that's very different than the other cases of suffik iser, where according to Reb Shimon, we should avoid them because logic dictates that it doesn't make sense to get into. Trouble. But in those three exceptional cases, even though if the person made a mistake and it turns out that they are Tame or they are a Mamzer or it is Orla, so they are going to need Kapara, they will need to repent for having done a prohibition. But the Torah still explicitly permits us to go ahead and do it in a case of Safek. So this is an Incredible chiddush, and it's unique only to those three cases. And we can't explain this. So Reb Shimon, even though he always tries to explain things, but there are times like this where he says we can't understand it. That's just the rule of the Torah. So we accept the authority of the Torah. But in the rest of the prohibitions where the Torah did not explicitly permit a suffix, so it's leaving it up to each person. But of course, we should avoid the situation because of the potential Iser. So that answers the Rashba's questions. That's why there is a special exception in the case of a Suffolk Mamzer and Suffolk Arlen Chutzla Aretz, because ordinarily we try to avoid a Suffolk, even according to the Rambam. In those cases, the Gemara is saying that you are permitted to do the case of Suffolk. Now, the Rashba also asked that according to Halacha, if someone ate a piece of meat which was a Suffolk, and then it turned out that it was prohibited, so they have to bring a carbon. That's what's called an asham talui. So says the Rashba, according to the Rambam, how could there be an obligation to bring a carbon when the person was allowed to do what they did initially? So again, Reb Shimon says, yes, according to the Rambam, the Torah did not prohibit it. But that doesn't mean it's allowed. The person should have used their independent reason and realized that they should avoid this case. And if they did not do so, even though they were allowed to choose to eat 
the piece of meat, but once it turned out they made a mistake, then they have to bring in Asham Taloi. So again, Reb Shimon's idea will answer this. And it also answers why the Gemara invokes the concept of rove, because even though ordinarily reason dictates that we should not do something which is a 50-50 suffix that perhaps it's prohibited, but if there is a rove, so majority indicates that this is a kosher piece of meat, then you would be allowed, even according to the standards of reason, to eat the meat because there is strong assumption that this is a kosher piece of meat. So this is an incredible analysis from Reb Shimon, and he concludes that according to this analysis, the debate between the Rambam and the Rashba is the Rambam Tzarech Adam Lifrosh Misafik Yisurin. According to the Rambam, a person needs to avoid Suffik Yisur. Based on the standards of reason, even prior to the rabbis prohibiting it. Just like a person should avoid dangerous physical situations, even if not for the command of the Torah. Whereas according to the Rashba, there's not only that concept, but in addition, the Torah also explicitly prohibits a case of a Suffolk Easter. So in this beautiful analysis, we see some of Reb Shimon's methodology, the way he asks questions and the types of answers that he's willing to give, as well as one of his big themes that we'll return to in subsequent recordings, that there is an independent role of reason to prohibit things, even if the Torah did not explicitly do so.